to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, your host, and welcome to the last podcast of 2022. I'm going to be taking the next two weeks off, but I will be coming back strong in 2023. And since this is a time of year when a lot of people are giving gifts, either putting them in stockings or handing them out next to a menorah or doing it in many other ways, I'm sure. I decided to concentrate on two bite-sized books, books that could easily fit into a stocking, but that have bigger ideas behind them. So I will be interviewing both of those authors, but I wanted to say howdy to you all first and announce that that we will be taking a short two-week break, but that doesn't mean we're taking a break at fromers.com. So I hope you will visit us there, especially if you haven't taken a look at it. We have such a great article up on the best places to go in 2023. I know, I know a lot of different entities now do these types of lists, but frankly, I don't think they do it as well as we do. Because one, we do it based on the suggestions of the Fromer's authors who actually live in all parts of the globe. And so they really have a a, a very smart take on what's changing, what's getting hot, what's suddenly affordable, what is going to be the best places to go in 2023 for very specific reasons. I look at a lot of these other lists and I think, okay, yeah, I always love going to Paris, but you haven't given me a reason why 2023 will be a good year for that. I think we've done that differently. So I hope you'll go visit us there and look at that article. Look at the other ones we have up. I have such brilliant colleagues. My my brilliant colleague, Zach Thompson, wrote one on the fact that Nantucket is now going to be a topless destination. And of course, he ended it with a hilarious limerick. We also have articles on some of the new travel scams you need to worry about. And some of them are pretty invidious. We have information on just settled lawsuits with major travel companies that will affect how you travel. We have ones on great places to ski. We have others on why you want to visit Door Country, Wisconsin. Basically, you'll find the whole world of travel there. So that's my plug for visiting us at Fromers.com. As I said at the start, I'll be interviewing authors who have really great books coming out. But let me also say, we have some darn good books. So beyond Fromers.com, I hope you'll go into your local bookstore and maybe give the gift of travel this year. There's nothing I think people would like better at the holidays. Buy a guidebook and present it to your loved one as a way of saying, honey, we're going to go on this adventure together in 2023, and we're going to plan it using this impartial, journalistically created book, a book that was created by a small family business with a lot of heart and a lot of smarts. As I said earlier, we use travel writers around the globe. We are not writing these from the United States. Our writers are embedded in the places they cover, and we think that gives our books more heft intellectually uh, and and in terms of emotional intelligence. You, you know, we, we really know where to send you. 
damn it. So enough of me blathering on. Let's get to my first guest. On the line, we have Damon Dominique. If you watch YouTube, you probably know him. He has the most delightful travel videos there, millions of followers, but he's gone old school and written a wonderful book. It's called You Are a Global Citizen, a guided journal for the culturally curious. Hey, Damon, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Hello, hello. Bonjour. <laughs> Bonjour, because you're in Paris, right? I'm in Paris. I've been here for quite a bit. Yes. Uh, lucky you. Lucky you. One of my favorite cities in the world. So let's talk about the book. I would describe it as a workbook in a certain way, but that makes it sound like a chore and it's anything but. How would you describe the book to somebody who knows nothing about it? So you're right in that it is a workbook in the sense that there are questions for the reader to answer. I wanted to make a book that questioned people on every aspect of their life thus far, because I find it really interesting that we all are operating in this global world, really blindly absorbing the qualities of our culture. That is to say, the first culture that was given to us, which was not one that we chose. So here we are operating in a world from an identity based on one fact that we didn't even choose. I find that really that that idea really interesting. So I wanted to create a book, um, essentially a question and answer book filled with my you know travel anecdotes here and there. Um, really the book that I would have wanted as I was studying abroad for the first time, backpacking for the first time, or even now in my current phase of popping around from Airbnb to hotel to train to plane. So is this book for travelers? Is it for making your journeys better because you'll understand yourself better? Or do you have a, a broader audience in mind? Do you want this to influence people who will never uh, get on a plane, who don't even have a passport? Oh, yeah. I think this is a book for anybody. The people who are just purely interested in travel, culture, and language, or philosophy for that matter, I like to take a a more yeah philosophical approach to my travels. The way I always saw it was I'm traveling not only to see these beautiful sights, like don't get me wrong, I'm from Indiana, like anything's going to be more beautiful <laughs> than the cornfields that I was from. But it was also to really understand like, okay, so there's an entire culture over there and they are living their lives, laughing, loving, having so much fun. And I want to take part in that. What could I learn from their culture that I don't currently know? So that was the approach that I took for this book. So do you think that travelers should be in a way shopping for a new nationality when mm -hmm. they travel? Should they be going around and saying, ah, I was born American, but my soul is French or my soul is Sri Lankan? Exactly. Uh, or, or is it, so that's it? I would say that's exactly it. I think that that's a really powerful statement as it is that when we're traveling, we're not only traveling to learn about other cultures, but to learn about ourselves via those cultures. Um, I think that's super important. We're all operating in this world um, really from one nationality or, or maybe two if you have parents from different cultures. That's great. And sure. You already have a head start. But for the majority of us, we all are just American or we're Canadian or we're French. And I think that's really important that as we travel, we're learning about other cultures. And, and of course, there are a million questions in this book. We could get a little bit more specific maybe if we want. Sure, sure. But, but before we leave this, I mean, I'm from New York City, where one out of every four people was born in a different country. 
uh, which was why I love living in New York City, because mm-hmm. it feels like the whole world is here. So looking around, I'm not sure what my culture is. It can change from block to block. Can someone definitively say, I should have been born in Taiwan or Thailand? Uh, or do you pick different parts of different cultures and and in your own travels what has your has been your experience with this question yeah i would say as we travel we are absolutely picking up things that we both love about our country and dislike about our country and me for one i grew up my entire life in indiana and i too lived in new york and la and i did all that and i was like you know what there's just something missing and i feel like i'm more european at heart so i came over to europe for a few years and i've been here now for on and off 10 years And I always thought coming here would solve all my problems. And now I realize, (laughs) oh, wait, now I've realized that there are parts of European cultures that I just do not like. And I miss my cheery, um, I miss being Mm. in the grocery store line or in Target and talking to, you know, just the random stranger in front of you. That would never happen in Paris. So they're really, oh, no, come on. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) No, um, they would find it, I think, a little bit too much of small talk. Um, Hmm. Yeah, there are definitely parts of every culture that I travel to that I realize, oh, I kind of like this. In Kenya, I remember um, everyone thought it was really funny that I absolutely loved their dish, Sukuma Wiki, which was really just, um, I think, like fried collard greens. And that was what they just ate every day and there was nothing special about it. But here I was a, a vegetarian in, in awe that finally I had something good to eat. Um, loved that. Huh. Or in Brazil, I just love that the people are just, everyone's operating on such a high frequency there. There's like a, a smile on everyone's face um, or in France. That Well, yeah. What do you like about France since that's where you've made your home? You know what? That's a great question. Every day I ask myself, what do I like about France? <laughs> No, I would say, Besides the beauty of Paris. Of course. I would say what drew me to Paris the most was that I feel like people here, by default, have a higher register of um, cuisine, art, architecture. Mm. I feel like if you ask the average person here, hey, what? who's your favorite artist? They're going to at least know artists. Um, whereas I feel like in the States, you know, maybe arts, the arts. Well, you're from New York, so this is a different case. But the arts are not something we're technically known for. We're more known for, Uh um, we excel in entertainment. We excel in Uh uh, sports. In fact, my my French ex, he was always saying, all right, look, if we're ever throwing a party, the French people are handling the food and you Americans can handle the performances and the entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. All right. Well, the book is filled with questions because the book is partially your writing and then it has very provocative, interesting questions with space for the right for the reader uh, to fill in their own answers. So would you feel comfortable with me asking you a couple of the questions? I think, yeah, that'll be great because I spent a year and a half kind of coming up with these questions, really thinking of how someone's answer from Australia would differ from someone from Norway. So I don't think I actually ever act, went through and wrote my own answer. So I'm totally down for this. Okay. All right. So one of them, what are you currently learning about and how does it make you feel? In what ways are you continuing to educate yourself outside of traditional schooling? Mm -hmm. I would say, well, first off, I'm all for alternative methods of education. I'm somebody who is just a self-learner naturally. The thing that I'm learning now, the subject that I'm learning most about is natural medicine. I've gotten really into this as I've been traveling because as I travel, I notice 
that each culture treats things differently. So when I was in Brazil, for example, I had a sore throat and they were like, oh, you just need to go get some propolis. And I was like, what? What's that? And essentially it's um, bee pollen or honey, Mm. the sort. Um, And so you just drop a few drops of that into some hot water, drink that, and you should be all set. So I've been really picking this up. I've been diving into natural medicine. And of course, that comes back to my own culture in the States where you do everything you can to not have to go to the doctor because you might not even have insurance or you just don't want to bother with it, you know? Hmm. So natural medicine. Interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Taboos. What do you find taboo? And what is taboo elsewhere that you don't find taboo at all? Mm-hmm. So the sec- the latter part of that question, I think I can answer more clearly. I feel like I'm really open. Like I will talk about anything and everything. I have nothing much to hide. But the only thing that I could think of that I find taboo that's just not my cup of tea is still meat eating. I really feel like mm-hmm. in 50 years, we'll look back and be like, wait, people drink milk from a cow? Wait a second. What? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not super vocal about my vegetarianism, but I do think that that's something I still find. I'm just more perplexed by it. It's yeah, I'm just a little confused why we, I mean, I obviously understand from the caveman phase why we were doing that, but yeah. I'm just like, wow. I, it, I I would assume you get a lot of puzzled people in France. I mean, the home of of incredible cheese mm-hmm. and cassoulet and other dishes that uh but I guess I, I is vegetarianism big in France right now. It's interesting. Every time I come back home here, there's a new it's just like a new health food shop opens or they got hard kombucha or they have a new vegan patisserie. Yeah, I would say it's definitely not the best place to be vegetarian. I'll also say I'm a little bit more lenient here. I didn't say it wasn't good to eat. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just, I'm, right. I'm a little confused by our our habit or obsession of it. When you really think about it deeply, it's like, hmm, ew. Well, here's one. In which ways do you prioritize your passions? In which ways are you doing a disservice to your passions? Ooh, yeah. So I wrote this question because I feel like me being in one of the main reasons I wanted to live in Europe is that I feel like people actually have a balance of work and life. Whereas in the States, we are go-getters. We have a hustle grind mentality and that's great for some things. But when it comes to, you know, just wanting to meet up with your friend for a drink, it's like you got to text them and then they probably have a yoga class or they're taking a Spanish class or they're, they're working on their side hustle. Whereas here in France, I find if I text somebody tonight after this and I'm like, Hey, you want to get a drink? They'll probably, we'll probably go get one. It's just, People have more free time, and I think they have more free time to focus on their passions. Of course, this is a bigger question, though, because I think people are taken care of in European systems as opposed to the States. We have a hustle mentality because we do have to pay for our college, and we do have to pay for our health care. And, you know, it's just more out of the pocket. Yeah, So I sure, think absolutely. It all kind of ties ties back to where we're from. Yeah. Well, here's one that, that as a to me, this makes me think of South Korea, actually, this question. To what extent are you willing to modify your looks? For example, teeth whitening strips, braces, tanning, LASIK piercing, mm-hmm. tattoos, investing in high quality skincare, plastic surgery. I was reading that young people in South Korea, uh, that it's more normal than not 
to undergo plastic surgery, that you're, you're, there's such a high standard of beauty there. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of problems with people having issues with weight and, uh, or even uh, with trying to lose too much with, with mm-hmm. anorexia, with bulimia, mm-hmm. with, you know, all, all types of issues. How is it, how, how do you focus on those issues. Yeah, I find that I found it fascinating actually because I lived in Koreatown for 3 years in LA and same I had the same observation that they mm. it was like everybody was doing it. There was nothing, there was no shame yeah. or guilt around it. It was just really like if you could afford it, why aren't you doing it? That was more the approach. Whereas G's in France, for example, that is not going to be the approach. They really I think value this idea of as I age, I'm gaining more in experience, gaining more in knowledge. So why would I want to look young? You know, like mm. I don't want to look young because that represents not being so wise. Or of course, a lot of these things, we might just be looking a little bit too far into them. Who knows? <laughs> but um, I find it every time I put on a high quality skincare product, I'm like, this is costing me the same. If I were to just go get something done real quick, it'd probably be the same. So yeah, I think opinions are changing and that is happening because of social media for better or worse. It's interesting that you feel, well, I guess the the French are more, uh, what's the word, comfortable with aging. Mm -hmm. And yet they always look so put together, I think. I think that they're uh, less sloppy Mm -hmm. uh, than Americans. If you go out, unless this has changed during the pandemic, because I think a lot of of, uh, cultural norms did change. People have gotten sloppier because of the pandemic. I think (laughs) I have. (laughs) You should see what I look like now. It's not good. (laughs) I I don't know. Do you think that that, uh, how we present ourselves is really a culturally determined question. What are you finding living in Europe mm-hmm. and how does that jive with your internal feelings of how, how it should be? I'd say it comes from who we look up to in society. So when you mm-hmm. look at the you know most famous people in the States versus the most famous people in France, a lot of the famous actresses in France, they I totally understand what you're saying, how, I mean, France is the the nation of Chanel and you can see my knowledge yes. of this topic. Chanel. <laughs> <laughs> Many other designers, absolutely. Yeah, voila. So they definitely have that side where they could be posh and chic, but they also have this side where they'll walk out to the boulangerie in their, you know, crinkly, wrinkly linen shirt and their hair will be a little disheveled, but they still just, it's like a they have an air about them that's just so confident, like, yeah, I look like this and what? And what are you going to say? <laughs> I look like this and I look fabulous. And I look somehow great. even it's a still a, a linen shirt that's crinkled. You know, mm-hmm. it's not. Um, I, I think that the, I, this is going on a deep dive, but I do think that the French shop less than the Americans do, but they buy higher quality things. So it's a different mindset about fashion. Absolutely. But, I will never forget the first time I came here and my French friends were buying 200 300 400 dollar coats and i would have never done that um right but of course it's because they have a different mentality this is going to last for years that's obviously worth it whereas in the states it's like if i can get this cheaper why don't i well anyway i i hate to end on such a i don't know it's such a shallow topic I, i'm not sure <laughs> uh, <laughs> but so so that we don't mm-hmm. 
I think that there's a serious matter behind this book. You named it, You Are a Global Citizen, and you did so in a time where we're seeing the rise of nationalism. I mean, even where you are, Marine Le Pen mm-hmm. almost won, the, or not almost won, but she got a lot more votes than that party has ever gotten before. We're seeing nationalism in Turkey. Uh, we're seeing a lot of nationalism in China. We're seeing a lot of uh, nationalistic parties and and sentiment here in the U.S. Um, are you hoping that this book can make a difference and, and how? Okay, absolutely. You're spot on with all these observations. I have a joke on my YouTube channel that as I travel the world, my main mission is to make America's reputation great again. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I'm very aware of of rising tensions. I mean, geez, the other day there was just a match between Morocco and France. And that was very tense as well, because, you know, the immigration pattern to France is is from the north of Africa. So that includes Morocco. So I'm very aware of all these things. I think the main observation I would love people to take away from the book is to, this isn't a book about becoming a global citizen. It's more a book about realizing that you already are a global citizen before anything else, before any other nationality, any other label you place on yourself. You're the person before that not the person after that. So I think a lot of people get get mixed up with that that mentality and they go into elections or they have certain ideas of different cultures and it's all coming from them cling, clinging to their own nationality. So which I feel like if they had a book like this, they'd realize, oh, I don't have to cling to my nationality just because I'm from there. Perhaps like this culture that I'm supposed to be arguing with or this other side that I'm supposed to disagree with, maybe I actually can learn from them if I just remove this this um, invisible filter, which is our national. Mm, yeah, beautifully put. Well, thank you so much, Damon, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. I'm so pleased to be speaking to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am too. Thanks again. Our second guest wrote a wonderful travel memoir. It's called Cassolet Confessions, Food, France, Family, and the Stew That Saved My Life. Her name is Sylvie Bigar. Hello, Sylvie. Thank you for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Hello, Pauline, and thank you so much for having me. Well, I feel like I know you after having read this book, which is a beautiful meditation on food and some family secrets And to me, it really brought me to France in a visceral way. There's a moment in the book where you're in Lyon and you're going to the restaurant made famous by Paul Bocuse and you tell a a taxi driver you're going there and he is stunned because it's a time of day when the restaurant wouldn't normally be open. And to me, that showed something so fundamental about France that even though it's a very expensive place, uh, the Paul Bocuse restaurant, uh, even a taxi driver would know all about it and would have, you you talk about the, the pride he feels that this great restaurant is in his hometown. Can you talk to me a little bit about how the French regard cuisine and culture? So, yes, absolutely. And what was actually so interesting and fun about this episode that happened to me was that I didn't say, um, I'm going to Paul Bocuse's L'Auberge 
you know, I just got into the taxi and I said, Cologne, please. And he turned hmm. around, he looked at me and he said, but it's closed for lunch. And I just, <laughs> and I just thought, oh my God, I'm in France, you know? I mean, it, you know, it's so, um, it's so part of the fabric of, uh, of that town. And, and Paul Bocuse was, and, you know, he's passed on, but he still yeah. is, um, you know, the, an icon for, um, for France and particularly for the city of Lyon. And that's a city that actually is very dear to my heart because uh, my grandmother was born in Lyon. Um, mm. and, uh, and actually I've worked with Danielle Boulou a lot, who's also from Lyon. So, right. uh, there's a lot of, uh, of things that converge into, into that town, which is, uh, sort of at the crossroads of so many currents in France, um, food currents, if you will. Absolutely. Although it's not at the center of your book, no. uh, your <laughs> book, and I, I should say we can hear that you're not in France right now because there's an ambulance going by in the background and it does not sound like a French ambulance. You're in New York, right? I am. I'm based in New York City. Right, right. Uh but a lot of this takes place in France because you undertake a pilgrimage to learn about cassoulet. Why did that dish so grab you? And, and tell if you could tell our listeners a little bit about why that is such a an iconic dish in the south of France. So, in fact, uh, the first time I tasted cassoulet, I had just flown uh, from New York. Uh, I was working as a food and travel writer. It was in 2008. And I'd gotten an assignment from a wonderful magazine, now also uh, defunct, uh, uh. Food Arts. Uh, and my editor, Michael Batterbury, um, had sent me to France to write what I thought would be a simple story on the history of cassoulet. Why the history of cassoulet? Because it's one of the sort of ancestral dishes of, uh, of the uh, French repertoire. And uh, most people think it was created in the 1300s. So I went to Carcassonne, the walled city um, in southeastern France, uh, thinking that I would go there, eat some beans, meet a chef, <laughs> uh, do a quick interview, head back, write the story in the plane on the way back and move on. In fact, um, that that trip and that first bite, if you will, changed my life. Well, it was be it was before the first bite that the drama happens. I love the fact as as our listeners can hear, you have a slight French accent. You grew up speaking French because you grew up in Switzerland. Yes, uh, and you get there, and they're not speaking French, right? What is the language that is uh, the locals speak there? So the locals speak Occitan, um, and it's the ancient uh, language of the antique Occitanie region. Now, France has um, taken that um, name back, and the whole region is now, again, called Occitanie. But it, mm. it, at the time, it was, you know, the, it was the Languedoc, Languedoc-Roussillon. Well, that was the name of the region. Um, right. But what I heard when I arrived 
in the dining room of Domaine Balthazar was um, not people speaking Occitan, but singing in Occitan. <laughs> yes. And they, they, they have a parade around the cassoulet. It's such a traditional dish that they're singing a, a hymn to the meat and beans in the dish, right? As they walk out with it. Exactly. I had just called and asked for an interview with this chef, Eric Garcia, who was the uh, founder of the Universal Academy of Cassoulet. Um, now people are rolling their eyes. Yes, that, that exists. There is such a thing. Um, and I thought I'd be, you know, admitted into the kitchen and I'd be able to eat, you know, maybe uh, at the counter, as I often did um, in the kitchens I work, worked in as a recipe tester or as a food writer. Uh, but in fact, when I arrived in this 12th century castle, just outside the walls of Carcassonne, um, the table was set for 25. And I was mm. stunned. And then I heard this song. And then I saw this parade arrive. And I was pinching myself. I, I was thinking, <laughs> you know, where am I? And who are these people? Yeah. And then you describe your first bite with such drama because a cassoulet has kind of a crust to it. Um, tell our listeners what is in a cassoulet and, and what makes it so special beyond the fact that it takes multiple days to cook one, right? Exactly. So the authentic cassoulet um, will will basically keep you busy for three days. Um, but but I do want to reassure the listeners that there are ways to uh, make simpler recipes. And in the book, um, my recipe tester, Marion, and I have devised a, a simpler recipe we call the gateway cassoulet. Which um, only takes eight hours, right? Yes. <laughs> Rather than three it, days. <laughs> well, you can start in the morning and then you can eat it at, in the evening. But basically right. what's in this stew is beans, um, vegetables, fresh herbs, and a whole array of meats. But now you have to know that depending on where you stand on the French soil, people are going to tell you very different things about what goes into a cassoulet. And in fact, it's such a uh, kind of a passionate attitude, if you mm -hmm. will, that, that people have, have actually been fighting over what you find in Toulouse versus what you find in Castelnaudary, the self-proclaimed capital of Cassoulet, or what you find in Carcassonne. But right. generally, if, if you want to just give a, a sort of a broad description, there's pork, there's duck confit, and there's uh, sausage, the so-called saucisse de Toulouse, and then, right. and then the beans, and then hopefully you're going to put in a little bit of pig skin. And that's sort of that collagen and maybe a veal, you know, veal bone or, or a ham shank. You need a little bit of that fat. You need that collagen to create the crust. And in fact, many restaurants, unfortunately, serve a cassoulet without crust. And the crust is the magic in the cassoulet. Mm. And the crust is created by that fat. Now, I know that probably some of our listeners are going, oh, isn't that terribly unhealthy? But you you go into, I think that's, a, it's a, what's the word? 
nobody quite knows how healthy or unhealthy fat is in the diet because you look at places like the south of France where they eat a lot of duck fat and their heart disease is is lower uh, than ours is. So it's absolutely they eat a lot of duck fat and they drink a lot of red wine and that's where the theory called the French paradox started. Yes. Now, I thought you also go into the fact why they think this type of meal was started in the 12th century. I had no idea. There were no beans in Europe before they were brought in uh, from other parts of the world, correct? Absolutely. Well, the beans were brought in from the Americas, but there, there are so many different and contradictory stories about how cassoulet started because some people think that it started in the 7th century when the um, Arabs actually brought the fava bean into, into France and that the first cassoulet was made with fava beans. Hmm. So, Ed, you mentioned that it requires collagen, and you, your, your life is kind of upended by that taste of cassoulet. You have to go back and learn how to make it yourself, and that requires butchering a pig head yes. <laughs> and spending two hours picking through beans to make sure that none of the broken ones make it into the stew. Just the details in this are so piquant and your emotional reaction to it and how learning to make this dish kind of mirrors what's going on in your life. I don't want to give away some of the family secrets, but of course, but wow, I think, well, I think every family has many secrets and yes. yours are dramatic Dramatic secrets. Uh, dramatic to say the least. But but just to explain what happened is that when I when I took that first bite, I was transported back home. And we've heard these stories over and over again, whether it's Proust with the Madeleine or it's, hmm. it's the food critic in Ratatouille who takes a bite of that, you know, Ratatouille and he's transported back in the in, in the garden of his mother and in the kitchen, right? And he can see himself as a little boy. In my case, it didn't make any sense because mm. the home that I grew up in had absolutely nothing to do with the uh, 12th century castle I was in near Carcassonne. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, you were you were raised uh, Jewish, so you, you weren't big pork eaters, uh, to, to put one uh, not so fine point on it. Yeah, so it's a it's a delightful book. Have you heard from people who have made the recipes in the back? How is that going for for your readers? So actually, I have heard from a lot of people and I'm 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 proud to say that the recipes have been tested and they work. And I'm not going to tell the readers there's not only cassoulet recipes. Mm. There there's one more, but that would uh, that would sort of uh, tell a little bit too much about the family secret. But no, the gateway cassoulet recipe is uh, is really foolproof. But I want to say this is, and I think you agree with me, Pauline, this is this is a memoir about identity, home, and, and culture, and travel, more than just a food memoir. And actually, I get a little annoyed when I see it in the bookstores with the cookbooks, because hmm. it's really, you know, it's nonfiction. And it's not a right. cookbook. 
No, it's not. There's only, I think, five recipes at the back, and the rest of it right. is your story and the story of your family. Yes, and 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 the very dramatic times they lived through, and and secrets they they had. Yes. Um, no, it's a it's a wonderful read, and I I said at the start of this podcast because I was uh, I, I talked with you and I talked with a delightful guy named Damon Dominique who has another book, and both of them I think are perfect size for stocking stuffers. So if you're still looking for a gift at this time of year, I think I think this would be a delightful thing to give to your travel loving friends. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show, Sylvie. I very much appreciate it. Thank you, Pauline. And thanks to all of you who are listening. As I said at the top of the show, we're going to be on hiatus for two weeks. But to those who are traveling, and I know a lot of you are at this time of year, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you in 2023. Watching cable